Welcome into episode 50 of the Landscape Photography Show. And let me just say, this episode was not my idea in the least. It all goes back to when I received a text from one of my friends that I met through photography, Kevin Jordan. And I received this text while I was in line in the drive through line at Chick fil A. And he said, Hey, what do you think about me interviewing you? for your own podcast. And my initial response was absolutely not. And and the reason why I said no at the beginning, or at least thought no at the beginning, was because I want this podcast to be for you guys, the listeners and the guests that come on. You know, I don't have a real formulated way of doing my questions or interviews. I kind of just take it where the guest leads it. But I... I thought about this idea for several weeks on end and finally the other day I texted Kevin back and said you know let's do it I have two stipulations though I don't want to know any of the questions you're going to ask beforehand and I have to answer any question that you do ask 100% so really this whole interview is an open book for me and I hope it serves as a way for you guys to get to know me a little bit better and to see why I ask the questions that I do and even give you a peek behind the curtain on what podcasting is like for a niche like landscape photography. Since our conversation was a lengthy one, I decided to split our interview up into two episodes. So this is going to be part one of our interview. Part two will be the next episode, episode 51. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey everybody, welcome to the Landscape Photography Show. We are here today with landscape photographer, YouTuber, uh, probably sleep-deprived new dad, and uh, the usual host of the Landscape Photography Show, David Johnston. David, welcome to your own podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it. No problem. Um, so I think before we kind of jump into things, we should probably do a quick explanation of what it is we're doing here. Uh, you are obviously the normal host of this show. Um, usual format is you'll bring a photographer online and kind of talk shop with them um, and pick their brain. But every once in a while, you'll do an episode where you just kind of um, muse on a topic and, and give your own thoughts on a given, uh, given idea. So I thought it might be a decent chance for, uh, for the tables to be turned and for you to uh, get a chance to have your brain picked a little bit on photography. So you graciously agreed, and that's kind of where we are right now. You know, I was hesitant at first. Um... Just because like my goal for the podcast isn't really to highlight my voice. It's it's more of a personal project for myself. And I know I've I've talked to other photographers that I've had on the show before, and we've discussed um, analytics, we've discussed uh, subscriber rates and things like that. But for the most part, I don't check those numbers unless I am importing the the chartable like analytics code into each episode when I'm coding up each uh, post for an episode. 
I, I don't really look at the numbers because it's more of a personal project for me. I like the relationships that I'm able to build on this and I want to feature other photographers and, and let them come on and give their voice because people can tune in every single week to me and hear maybe my thoughts or, or kind of form an episode around not really what I'm trying to get out of somebody, but more or less what a typical conversation between two photographers sounds like. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think you normally do a very good sort of conversational style when it comes to uh, the people that come on the podcast. Um, I think what I want to try and do with this is, you know, I think a lot of your sort of basic, you know, most basic thoughts and feelings on photography probably come through in your regular conversations. So I'm going to try and dig a little bit deeper, um, maybe go a little bit into podcasting itself and sort of content creation and stuff like that, that maybe you don't dive as deep into, at least for you personally, and kind of see what we can get out of that. Yeah, yeah. Like like I said, when we were talking about doing this, I'm an open book. Everything's on the table. Um, I have no idea what you're going to ask, so it's a little intimidating. And now I know <laughs> how it feels on the other side of the microphone, but um, I'm good to go, whatever you want to discuss. All right, we're going to start off with something pretty in-depth and hard-hitting. You are a new dad. What number cup of coffee are you on right now? Today, so far, I'm only on number two. And that is, it's only because um, she's like, she's not in a sequence of routine right now with sleep. So we'll have like two nights of just awful sleep where she does not go into a deep sleep and she's just like grunting and making newborn noises, typical baby noises all night long. Um, last night was one of the best nights. So I am raring to go for today. Only two cups of coffee. Like, I don't know what it, we were talking about. Me and my wife were talking about this just a second ago, how we were trying to figure out what, what did we do different last night that we can replicate every single night? Because it was so amazing to sleep for actually three hour stretches of not being woken up. And, and as a non-father, setting the bar high as, as three-hour chunks at a time is sounds awful to me, but I know I'll get to that point eventually and learn uh, that that's probably a benefit and not a hardship. It's, it's what you want, man. You know, I think <laughs> four hours right now would be the holy grail, but I'm not I'm not going to discredit the, the thankfulness that I am for the three-hour stretches that I got last night. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're fresh. Um, let's jump in. So, Typically, when you have other photographers on the podcast, you tend to start off with sort of the origin story. So I feel like it's only fair that we do that for you, too. So give us, you know, how you got started in landscape photography and sort of what the broad overview is of how you got to where you are now. Sure. Yeah. For Let's start. Um, let's just go back to the very beginning with this. I did a film photography class in high school. And the reason I did it was because for some reason, my high school had this weird setup where I could take an art elective and pass on a required geography course. So I decided to do choir. So I sang in high school. I sang all four years of high school. Uh, and it was like an extracurricular that I did. And then um, to do my other art credit, I guess I did some painting classes. And then in my last year I did uh, film photography and it was really difficult because I had no idea about how a camera worked or, or manual mode or getting the exposure right or anything like that. But the whole process of 
composing a shot and trying to figure out what my settings on my camera should be while not being able to see the product of what I just shot with film until I, I developed that in the dark room that we had in our high school uh, was just a really fun process for me. And I didn't really understand at the time that you could actually do that for a career. And maybe it was because it seems like internet and social media for the most part was at its beginning stages. I think if we look back at whatever year that was, I think like MySpace was, was what people were using for social media, um, where you could like rank your friends, which seems like a really weird way to interact with people of like, you're my first favorite friend and you're <laughs> my fifth favorite. Um, but anyways, I digress. I, I got back into it once I graduated college, uh, I got a DSLR for Christmas one year and, and I just had to learn everything I could about that subject uh, of photography and, and even the digital side of it and editing my images right away. And, and it was more fun for me with the digital side than the film side because I could immediately see what I did wrong on the back of my camera. I could immediately go through in my mind the trial and error of every single photograph, what I was trying to get, whether that be foreground shots or long exposure shots or wide angle or telephoto. And all these ideas started to come to me about what was possible with photography. And I did all types of photography and whittled it down to my favorites uh, at the time that were sports photography and landscape photography and adventure photography, which is those like adventurous portrait shots and the outdoors landscape. Um, from there, I decided that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, at least for now, um, because things change, you know, I think we go through these ebbs and flows of creative expression and creative blocks too. And I went through one of those about two years after I had been doing landscape photography full time. And this was when um, my wife and I decided to be missionaries and we moved to Haiti for two years and lived in Haiti uh, doing missionary work down there. And I, the first six months we were there, I didn't even pick up my camera because I was so burnt out and tired of just the whole process of social media and only being able to predominantly interact with people over a digital space rather than a more personal, uh, relational way of shared passions and shared experiences, I think, because landscape photography can be such a solitary experience. Um, I wasn't really expecting that I wouldn't have that many friendships or relationships within photography that were personal. You know what I mean? So going through that, I, I think my first stage before that two year break really taught me a lot. What, what I, the way I learned with landscape photography in the first place, trial and error, what worked, what did I like, what did I didn't like? And moving forward when we moved back to the states ramping my business back up i figured out okay what did i enjoy in those first two years and what did i not how can i limit the amount of things i did not like and expand upon the things that i did like and i think the podcasting side of it 
building those relationships and friendships with other photographers and also more of like a video teaching side instead of a workshop um, uh, scene of, of teaching is what I really enjoyed. And that's how I tried to build my business my, my second time around, I guess. I don't know if I ever really went away because I still posted and stuff on social media, but really going for it a second time, that's how I built my business. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, so I, I hear a lot of, to- of photographers talk about sort of their progression and the discipline. I mean, for, for me personally, I kind of went from shooting anything sort of like a, a, I think it's called the spray and pray method. Yeah. Um, eventually went on to a lot more specific, like pre-scouted, pre-planned shots. And now I'm sort of at a blend of sort of pre-planned shots and just on the fly exploration while I'm out in the field. Do you, do you think you have a progression in terms of your photographic process over the years? For sure. I was thinking about this the other day, actually, and I, I think I made a post about it of, I was going through a lot of my older images and I'm sure a lot of people have done this in this whole uh, age of pandemic and, and quarantine going back through and, and either re-editing old images or just going back through them and, and trying to remember a time where we did go out and, and photograph things. But I was going through these images and I thought, man, I was a way better photographer, I think, back then than I am right now because in a sense, I I was kind of fearless. I had no idea what people responded to on social media, which made me more creative and push the boundaries a little bit more. And I think starting out there, I think my progression went down a bit or, or went in a negative slope if we're looking at like a flow chart type of visualization. So going down on the flow chart, I started to pigeonhole myself into a very specific type of photograph. And I would only look for that when I went out and shot. And it, in a sense, it, it, it forced me in a way to just copy other people's compositions that were working on social media so I could build a business and build a following. And it just limits you creatively. So the past two years and my progression has been more of getting back to that, push the boundaries and think about things a little bit more creatively when you go to a waterfall, don't just frame up the entire scene and have that massive landscape that people tend to respond to. Photograph some scenes for yourself too there and whittle down the scene into just like a single stream of water or a leaf that's propped up on a rock that really people aren't gonna respond that much to, I don't think, unless they really appreciate photography. But in a sense, that is you getting back to the roots of why you love photography in the first place, just seeing things that were interesting to you and not worrying about how people will respond to an image instead photographing just for yourself. And and that can be scary when you are doing this full time and it's your only source of income because you want people to respond to the images. But again, when you do photograph for yourself and you become a little bit more genuine and 
transparent and vulnerable with people, they respond to you rather than the photos. And, and I think that's where you can really start to build not only a business, but friendships around photography and friendships around a style and, and helping people a little bit more crack into, okay, this is what I like to photograph and this is what you might enjoy rather than forcing, you know, 10 compositional tricks to get better. They're the same 10 list of things that everybody has really dig deeper into how you teach people and, and getting information to them of, well, what do you enjoy photographing and how can you creatively frame up this scene? Yeah, I think that's an important way to look at it. Cause I think, I think any landscape photographer who's been doing this for, for long enough probably has a bit of an idea of what people will respond to the most, whether it be buying prints or, or, you know, feedback on social media and things like that. But, mm -hmm. you know, in an age where you may only have someone's attention on social media for literally two or three seconds as they scroll past. I, mm -hmm. I think having that more um, deliberative approach and shooting things that kind of speak to you that you can then relate to other people is a, is an effective way to kind of make connections photographically. For sure. And I think that's what it's all about too. Like when think about when we all first started out, we, we wanted to be a part of a community I think rather than just take pretty pictures, like we wanted to learn and share ideas with other photographers who enjoyed taking photos of the same things. And in the age of, of social media and, and digital photo sharing that gets lost so many times, but we have to make an effort, I think of, of sharing ideas and, and, and interacting with other people. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Um, so I want to, I want to switch gears and talk about the Smokies a little bit. So we, we were there last year and I, I was struck by just the sheer number of people that visit that park. Um, <laughs> so I, I looked it up and in 2019, the Smokies had the most visitors of any national park in the country at like 12.6 million. Mm -hmm. And that was more than double the Grand Canyon, which was in second place for national parks. Mm -hmm. So knowing how much you've visited and shot there over the years, um, what have you seen, if anything, in terms of sort of how the rising number of visitors has affected the park and the landscapes there? Yeah, that's a really good question. It The first thing that comes to mind is the fire that was in the Smokies a few years ago. Um, one of the most popular trails in the Smokies, and you know, I don't have to worry about sharing the name of it because everybody knows about it who goes there and it's probably the the number one trail on lists when people look up like 10 best places to hike in the Smoky Mountains is uh, Chimney Tops Trail. And there was a fire that started on the top of Chimney Tops Trail by two teenagers who, I don't know, I honestly don't know what they were thinking. They just started a fire up there. Um, and it was kind of the perfect storm. It was a little bit windy that day. It was very dry. And a huge storm rolled in that evening with 80 mile an hour winds. Um, I don't know if it was a derecho or not, but it was something similar to that. And it just blew embers all over the place and started a huge fire in the Smokies. And I think that's like the number one thing that I think of when I think about impacts to a park like that is 
a free national park and it's free because it was gifted to the states of Tennessee and North Carolina by the landowners. They tried to start charging admission to people um, when, it, when it was handed over in that family's will, but the family took the two states to court and the court ruled that it had to stay a free park. So obviously free park, larger number of people because it's more affordable. The downside, like I just said, are wildfires, are uh, impacts of foot traffic, um, people who aren't necessarily educated about the area because it's one of the most diverse parks that I've seen in my time. And maybe that's just because I spent a lot of time hiking there and experiencing low elevations and high elevations too. So you have historical aspects to the park, you have low valleys, you have mountain streams up high, you have old growth forests. And that's so much information to take into account of just a small space because I just don't think people want to research that part of it. I don't think they want to research the natural fragility of it. Instead, they just want to research how long is this hike and can I actually do it stepping out of my Hondo cord and flip-flops with, you know, shorts and a t-shirt on. Um, there are hikes in the park where I've passed people who don't have the right footwear on when it's snowy and icy up in the higher elevations. And they are just woefully underprepared. And you can tell. And the first question they always ask is, you know, how much further to the top? Because this is way more than I bargained for. And it, it's just, I, I don't know how we can tell people a little bit better about how to research things for yourself because maybe culture and society right now is such a spoon fed culture of information. Um, and maybe we don't have the, the energy for that as photographers right now, but it is devastating to see trampled vegetation on the sides of the trails. When you know from your experience that this is an old growth forest, that's not going to grow back within the next you know, five to 10 years, or when you go to a waterfall location and you see those stupid spires of stacked rocks on the side of a river, when you know, okay, this area is home to one of the most endangered species of salamanders, the hellbender, just this huge salamander that lays its eggs up under these rocks and people, because it looks, I don't know, does it look cool on social media? I think it looks really stupid, but these stacked rock spires uh, that could have these hellbender eggs up underneath them and people just don't know that that species is there or that the eggs could be laid up underneath these rocks. So it's very sad to think about the Smokies in that sense of it is such, I have such a personal connection with that park, not only in Tennessee, but also in North Carolina, that I want people to know about it. But it's very draining to try to spoon feed information to people without sounding like I'm on a soapbox and just angry all the time. 
It's 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 certainly a a very delicate double-edged sword. I mean, it's you want the visitation because it brings resources to the park to be able to protect things, but at the same time too, you you can't control the level of education of the visitor, at least until they get to the park. And even then, you know, if they're not interested, it may not happen. But I mean, I I don't know them. I don't think to the same degree, you know, the Smokies, but the White Mountains up in New Hampshire are sort of more of my kind of home mountains. And I mean, there's a there's a very, very popular hike there called the Franconia Ridge Loop. And it's it's absolutely stunning. I want to say it's like a eight or nine mile uh, loop. And once you get up to the top, you walk along the ridge for I think about a mile um, up and down a couple of peaks, and you just have sort of um, unobstructed views of the rest of the, the White Mountains. And it it's popular for a reason. It's a spectacular hike, but it's also, for how popular it is, a very difficult hike. Mm-hmm. And I remember I went up there a couple of years ago, and I I was trying to do a, a Milky Way photo. So I started at night, um, and I was going up the trails. A lot of people were coming down. And the amount of people that just look completely broken, out of water, in flip-flops and things like that was kind of concerning. And there was multiple people who were like, oh, hey, if you see this person farther up, tell them I went to the car. And in my head, I was like, okay, one, I will. And two, why didn't you stay with them if they mm-hmm. need you? Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and you know, I don't want to deter people from going outside, but you you want them to be safe too. And, and no one needs to experience nature in the exact same way. But, you know, I at least want to see people not wearing flip-flops two miles up a you know, very rocky, uh, easy to turn an ankle kind of trail, which is exactly what most of New Hampshire is. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I even remember back to, there's another very popular hike that everybody does in the Smokies called a loom cave trail. And it takes you up to Mount Lacan, which is one of the highest points in Tennessee. And it's just this incredible overlook of mountains as far as you can see. But it's an extremely difficult hike that even tests me as an avid hiker. And as somebody who like I train, I I work out to, to hike and have the endurance to do those trails. And, um, I remember me and my friends did the loom cave trail. We tried to, to do it on the coldest day of the year. So we had, um, that, the, the crampons, the little mini ones that you can put over your boots when we got up to the high elevation and some ice and some hikers who were in like, I think it was this girl who was wearing um, like yoga pants and maybe a tank top and it's freezing up there and she's wearing tennis shoes and she made fun of us as she passed us on the trail for putting on our crampons. She was like, you're not going to need those. And literally 10 feet down the trail, she stepped on ice, slipped and fell straight on her butt. And we, I mean, it was really sad, but like we couldn't help but laugh and be like, okay, you still have like four more miles to go. How much more of this are you going to be able to take? Yeah, that's, that's one of those, I hope you're not seriously hurt, but what did you learn kind of moments? Exactly, exactly.
Hey guys, just real quick, I wanna pause and tell you about a really special opportunity that you have right now. If you go to my website, davidjohnstonart.com, you can get any course that I have for sale on there for 33% off for a limited time. Again, that's any course on davidjohnstonart.com for 33% off for a limited time if you use the code david33 during checkout. Now, that's gonna be any course that I have on my website that I create myself or any course that I have on visual wilderness that I create for them, which is really unique because usually it's one or the other. On my website, you're gonna find courses that will take you in the field, that will take you in post-processing, that will be really quick tutorials that are just like $15 a piece for almost an hour's worth of content that's gonna cover various topics and post-processing. On the visual wilderness side, we're gonna be going through through several post-processing techniques and also several case studies that you can interact with through those courses too. Again, that's davidjohnstonart.com, 33% off for a limited time if you use the code david33 during checkout. All right, so you um, you had Alistair Ben on the podcast uh, relatively re- recently. Mm-hmm. And in the episode where he was on, he said that photography for him is sort of an exploration of who he is when he takes a photo and when he sits down in front of a computer for post-processing. Do you at all find that your experiences visibly affect your images or is it just kind of your style is fairly consistent throughout your body of work? Hmm. That's tough. That's a good question. Um, I think for the most part, it depends on how long I wait before I edit an image getting back from a trip. And I think that like, if I look back to the example of when you and I went to Death Valley and Alabama Hills, I edited the images after that trip pretty quickly. Um, And I think that when when I did so, I edited them for more of like how I, how I saw and experienced the place instead of taking a more creative approach to editing an image. And that's not to say that I do composites and put a bunch of fake stuff into the image. That's to say like really critically thinking about what is in the image instead of focusing on the experience a little bit more. And that's one of my downfalls as a photographer because I get so excited to edit that image and not put my whole uh, thoughts of everything because I haven't processed the entire trip in my mind yet of, of like what I saw and, and what I experienced and you know what we talked about and discussed and, and hiked while we were there. But instead, just sitting down and and rolling through the edits really quickly um, doesn't allow me to put my full self and put my whole idea into a photo, if that makes sense. And, And I did the same thing when I got back from Kenya earlier this year is I just, you know, rolled out these images really quickly something I think I took like 15,000 images while I was there and picked out a couple hundred that I really liked and just quickly made some very generic edits to them and, and 
put them out on, on, uh, I don't know if I did a post or like a blog post or something about it. I did a couple videos from it too, but then I went back later and, and started working with them at a more slower pace and more ideas and more memories from a trip started to come to mind about what the evening was like when I photographed, you know, a lion in golden light with kind of like hazy atmosphere behind it and then really dive deep into how that can be explored more in post-processing without changing the experience, the realistic experience uh, too much. I think for me, that's where it comes into putting like my whole creative vision into a photo, taking the image in the field and having that experience, but also sitting down and mentally processing what happened there and what I did see, what I did learn about a new place or about myself or about other people that I was on the trip with. And I do, I do really believe that that's where more creative vision comes into the post-processing side of things. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, actually, I also wanted to touch on, and this is more of a similar idea, but from a longer term perspective, mm-hmm. you, you did a podcast episode a while back talking about the connection between photography and mental health. Mm. Um, for you personally, it kind of stemmed from your experiences living in Haiti. Um, and I mean, first of all, I want to say thank you for doing that because a lot of the things that you described in terms of sort of experiencing anxiety and panic attacks sounded very similar to things that I've experienced too. And I know I benefited from sort of hearing that I'm not unique in having those experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think you've seen a change at all in your photography since you lived there, whether it be sort of how you approach shooting or how you process shots? Yes. And maybe it's more on the travel side of things because I do enjoy travel photography and photographing the people in a place and culture and like like those street markets where they just sell a bunch of food and, and the vendors there. It changed me in a sense of understanding culture over the photograph mm, and yeah. knowing knowing kind of like the faux pas in a culture of what not to do versus being kind of like the typical American that goes into a place and just points your camera at, at anybody without a second thought about it, knowing what, what ticks people off in a location and what, I mean, we can even relate this to like wildlife and landscape photography, what impacts a place rather than thinking just about the photo. So what impacts a person, a culture, uh, an animal, a place, rather than just going into it with, you know, I want to get this photo and this photo, and I don't really care what impact that it has on them, on the place. I just want the image for my own personal enjoyment. Um, I think that has had the most effect on me when I do think about going to a new location with photography. Um, And I saw like a big transition in that when I did go to Cuba, I, I went to Cuba after living in Haiti for nine months. I think I lived in Haiti by that point. And 
just taking photos of people and understanding the culture through a walking tour and I'm hiring somebody to be able to ask these questions uh, and get honest responses from them about what people think of tourists, what people think of, you know, people who live in the United States of, of that culture and having that information handy before I point my camera at somebody is, is, is really important. And I think that's the main thing that I learned about my time in Haiti, but also being able to take my experiences there and travel to other places has helped me a lot to um, understand a little bit more of how I am perceived by them. Because I think we go into a place and we're consumed by how we perceive that location or how we perceive that culture instead you know how are they perceiving me what stigmas or or ideas do they have about me and my culture and what can i do to show them that i respect them show them that i care about them and that i'm not just there to take 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 but also learn and, and listen to people is highly beneficial. And, and whether you speak a language or not of where you're going, you always can find interpreters or tour guides who can help you learn that, that aspect of travel photography. Because even if you're going into just a landscape, you can find a tour guide who will tell you what locals perceive tourists as and you know how you can help protect the environment that what comes to mind a lot is slot canyons i mean those are often on native american reservations or protected land and you really can't get back into them too much without a native american guide and, and listening to them now i've never been to a slot canyon i can just assume that listening to them teach you about the impacts that you can have on a slot canyon and the impacts that you can have on a culture can be astronomical. And I think we've seen that. I mean, I've seen that on recent posts of slot canyons and how people have used rocks to write on the sides of the very delicate and fragile um, sandstone that's there. Yeah. And I think that's a really important way to look at it because it, it kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of getting a little bit deeper with the photo you're taking, but it almost takes the photo from something that may just, just be a snapshot to a lot of people to more of a conversation or at least a conversation starter for a lot of important topics. Yeah. And you know, it also stems to, if you go to a location and, and, or a whole new culture and let's say, let's get away from landscape photography for a minute. And let's say you do like a street food, type of vendor shot with a lot of vibrant colors and, and new produce that you've never experienced before and the vendor there, you know, if you go back and you show people back home that photo and that experience, what, what can you tell them about it would be my question to you is, can you just say, oh, this is like a, a street fair that we walk to and, and, you know, here's a person selling the food and look at all these colors. I want to dive deeper than that and say, this is, you know, so-and-so 
this is, you know, her produce. This is what it's all called. This is what it tastes like. Um, she shared with me about, you know, her experiences there. And I have a look, I have a lot of work to do on this too. It, it's not just something that you dive into and, and automatically you're a pro at it. I'm sure I still disrespect cultures unintentionally, but just putting in the effort of trying to do this when you go to a place um, has become really important for me. And it's, it is something about photography that I learned from my time in Haiti. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, with, with topics like that, I think it's, it's only natural to, you know, get information little bits of it at a time, even if you're trying to seek it out. So you'll potentially make mistakes along the way, but in terms of that, it sounds like, you know, progress, not perfection is probably the, the stance to take just to make sure you keep moving forward and keep improving. For sure. As it is in every aspect of life, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely true. Yeah. Um, so I want to, I want to touch very quickly on post-processing and this is something you've said to me in the past and maybe you've changed your stance on it, but I've heard you say before that you're just not a huge fan of post-processing. You'd prefer to spend your time kind of out in the field shooting. Mm -hmm. So advances in software have already come a long way. Do you, does any part of you hope that, you know, continued advances in software will make post-processing streamlined to the point that like one click can edit a photo to your liking or even advances make post-processing processing kind of completely unnecessary? Um, you know, I, I, since we discussed this last time, Kevin, I've, I've gone back and forth on this and it's okay. really weird because I do, I do not like post-processing that much. Um, and I would rather be out in the field taking photos, but with the advances in software, let's take, you know, one software that I do use from time to time, which is Luminar. Um, the artificial intelligence applications of edits that you can put into that are insanely quick insanely fast insanely easy and they do produce like good looking photos however i have been really annoyed at the fact while using them that i don't have full control over every single adjustment that i'm making so if you let's take the same example if you increase the artificial intelligence just generic slider in luminar it will impact your vibrancy, your saturations, your contrast, your clarity. It will, you know, fix your highlights and shadows for you right away. And you can immediately export that image to your output file and share that to social media. And it will look very good. It will be a very nice, clean image, assuming you have your crop right and assuming you don't have any dust spots or anything like that on, on your lens or in your image. But every time I do that, I always think to myself, well, is this really like my image or is this the computer's image? And I don't think that I have a a firm stance on it right now. Um, I like how fast and easy it is, but I don't like the lack of control and maybe Ooh, this is getting into a deeper subject, but maybe I want control in some aspect of photography because I have zero control 
in the landscape. If you think about going to a place like you schedule a photography trip or most people do months in advance. And then when you get there, what are conditions going to be? Okay. Now I have to work with these conditions and try to figure out what I can do with what's going on with the weather, with the light, um, with my gear, what did I bring? Do I have limitations there? So I, you have very little control in the field. How much control do you want in the overall production or the final version of the photograph? And maybe, maybe I'm grasping for that a little bit in terms of post-processing when I have experienced doing artificial intelligence editing in the past. Um, maybe I am grasping for, for that sense of control. So I think your question is is not only beneficial for people listening but also me because that just like put this light bulb above my head of of what 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 am i seeking in post-processing um and maybe a lot of people including myself need to ask them that a little bit more so i was actually thinking about the same question um the past couple of days knowing that i wanted to ask you and i i mean that was (laughs) that sounded like a solid breakthrough moment right there but yeah i I I also think that like post-processing for me is I'm definitely in in much less of like a creative flow than I am when I'm in the field. And, you know, I I would love for post-processing to be streamlined to an extent. Cause I mean, I'm, I'm kind of the opposite of you. Like I'm, I'm rarely putting out photos right after I'm in the field. I mean, I'm working through photos from last year still and probably before that too, in some senses, but it, if I could make that process shorter and get a photo looking the way that I like, you know, I think I'd probably be for that, but I wouldn't want to totally give up the reins. I think the, the part of it that, you know, makes me want to shy away from post-processing or maybe limit it a little bit is just that I do a lot of back and forth and mental anguish of does this look right? Does it look the way I want it to? Is it conveying, you know, the, the look that I want it to. And I don't know that I'd ever be comfortable with artificial intelligence doing that for me, but I would love if somehow it got to the point where, you know, it was a little bit easier and less of a strain, but I'm guessing that's more of the photographer on my part, not giving up the reins than it is, you know, any issues with software. Yeah. And, you know, an idea or a thought that just came to my mind while you were talking about that was what, what can artificial intelligence or what can a software with that amount of power, because I'm trying to keep this, this response a little bit evergreen because software constantly updates and who knows whoever's listening to this, who knows what year or month it is down the road. But I do know that later this year, there are going to be more artificial intelligence um, applications coming out from that company who produces Luminar and it, what, what is that going to do also to the value of photography and the value of photographers? How is that going to make us look since I think post-processing already gives photographers kind of this stigma to the, to the general audience of, is that real? Um, how much post-processing did you plug into that? And just having computer generated artificial intelligence edits, how much more is that going to degrade the creative expression of photographers who are really putting a lot of effort into 
the the slightest of slightest adjustments that we can see that nobody else can see that that we know will just that one tweak will make this photograph exactly how we want it to be Hey, thanks so much for listening to part one of this conversation between Kevin and I. I hope it kind of shed light on who I am, what makes me tick, and why I started up the podcast to help people out in discovering new creative ways to use their landscape photography gifts or learn more about their favorite photographers. Part two is going to be in the next episode. So if you want to hear that and you're not subscribed yet, Feel free to subscribe to the podcast for free on any podcast platform. Again, it's the Landscape Photography Show, free to subscribe, and I'll see you guys next week.